This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by University of California Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The War in Court, Inside the Long Fight Against Torture by Lisa Hajar. The book traces the fight against U.S. torture policy by lawyers who brought the war on terror into courts. Hajar outlines why challenges to the torture policy had to be waged on the legal terrain and why hundreds of lawyers joined the fight. Drawing on extensive interviews with key participants, her own experiences reporting from Guantanamo, and her deep knowledge of international law and human rights, Hajar reveals how the ongoing fight against torture has had transformative effects on the legal landscape in the United States and on a global scale. The War in Court by Lisa Hajar, out now from University of California Press. Learn more at ucpress.edu. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Gracchus Babeuf, born François-Noël Babeuf in 1760, was the French Revolution's most famous ultra-radical. In 1797, Babeuf was tried and executed by the Directory government. He and his compatriots had been captured while hatching their conspiracy of equals. Their quixotic plan was to overturn the centrist order that had governed since Thermidor overthrew Robespierre's terror, install popular democratic rule, and, astonishingly, abolish property. That last idea being Babeuf's striking theoretical innovation. Marx and Engels would later credit Babeuf for helping to give, quote, rise to the communist idea. However far-sighted his intuition, Babeuf's conspiracy was doomed to fail because, in Marx's view, the historical conditions were not ripe. Babeuf had anticipated a form of radical egalitarianism, communism, in an epoch in which the bourgeoisie still possessed its revolutionary vocation. But for Marx, famously, if Babeuf was ahead of his time, in a sense, Robespierre and Saint-Just were historical reenactors, looking to the past. They aped the style and rhetoric of Roman republicanism. But that mimicry had a logic for Marx. It conferred on the inglorious prerequisites of bourgeois rule, a heroic grandeur necessary to bring them into being, and dispense with the vestiges of the old feudal order. The Jacobins, Marx wrote, confused the great political drama of antiquity with the demands of their own era, memorably reflected in the Declaration of the Rights of Man, with its affirmation of the sovereign individual, privately pursuing his own aims for his private interest. Their tragedy was to set in motion a series of events that led to Napoleon taking power and putting an end to the Republic. But from where Marx was sitting in the middle of the 19th century, watching a new set of revolutionaries of the French Second Republic likewise take the stage in historical costume, this time of their predecessors, the protagonists of the Great Revolution, that was farce. Marx and Engels clearly saw something remarkably precocious in Babeuf's proto-communism, a vision of revolution that, while his contemporaries draped themselves alternately in the guise of the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire, took its poetry from the future, not the past. At the same time, 
Marx was consistently skeptical of what we could call the Babuvian tradition, transmitted by figures like Babuf's surviving co-conspirator Philippe Buonarroti, who decisively memorialized the conspiracy of equals, and Louis-Auguste Blanqui, an icon of armed insurrection from the July Revolution of 1830 to the Paris Commune. If Babuf's politics failed to make good on his radical ambition, this could be ascribed to its means as much as its ends. A truly social revolution would be accomplished not by a small vanguard of conspirators, but by collective mobilization of the working class, the proletariat as historical subject. Historical circumstances had both constrained what was possible and obscured those constraints to the people who attempted to overcome them. People like Babuf. Today's episode is my interview with Laura Mason, the author of The Last Revolutionaries, The Conspiracy Trial of Gracchus Babuf and the Equals. The book is a truly captivating read, but it's not about situating Babouf in a revolutionary tradition so much, Marxist or otherwise, which is how he is typically discussed and what I've been doing the last few minutes. Instead, Mason's book is about how the French Revolution ended. The upshot is a diagnosis very relevant to our own moment, a utopian demand for an egalitarian future amidst a miserable present and a centrist government that turned its back on popular democracy, presided over growing inequality and working-class poverty, and abetted the rise of the reactionary right that would ultimately overthrow it. Before we get started, there are so many great ways to express your appreciation for this podcast. One really, really great way to do that is to support The Dig at patreon.com slash the dig. This podcast is a bit of a financial experiment, and so far it's worked out really well. We don't paywall any of our episodes because we raise most of the money to keep this thing running by simply asking you, our dedicated listeners, to voluntarily contribute. If you can afford just $5 a month, it really does make a big difference. I know that some of you cannot, which is totally fine. I'm very glad to have you as a listener. But if you can afford to contribute, and I know that many of you can, please do so. We will also hook you up with our weekly newsletter emailed to you in your inbox. And for $10 a month or more, we will send you a book or books in the mail, a dig tote bag, or a dig mug. You know you want that swag. Many of you, I'm sure, have been meaning to contribute, but just plan on doing it some other time. Please do it now. It'll only take a couple minutes. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Laura Mason, a professor in history in the program in film and media studies at Johns Hopkins University. She writes about politics, popular culture, and the press during the French Revolution. She's the author of The Last Revolutionaries, The Conspiracy Trial of Gracchus Babouf and the Equals. Laura Mason, welcome to The Dig. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. We obviously can't tell the whole story of the French Revolution here because it's a really dense one. From the fiscal crisis that pushes King Louis XVI in 1789 to call the Estates General for the first time in nearly two centuries, to the fall of the Bastille, the experiment with constitutional monarchy, the outbreak of war with Austria and Prussia in 1792, through the abolition of the monarchy, the Declaration of the Republic— 
and the king's beheading, the terror of 1793 to 1794, the Thermidorian revolt against Robespierre and the ensuing white terror, concluding, at least for some, with the rise of Napoleon Bonaparte and the advent of the first French empire. Your history in this interview will focus on how it all came apart. And you write, quote, this is a history of the French Revolution for the 21st century. Why, as you write, is this the moment, quote, to turn away from the origins and mobilization to examine the end of the French Revolution? Well, first, let me say it's a great summary of the revolution. It's not easy to do in like 60 seconds. Why is this the moment to turn away from the origins and radicalization of the French Revolution? In the 20th century, historians, sociologists, politicians were dealing with issues that had to do with the opening and radicalization of revolution. And that dates from 1917 with the Russian Revolution. But across the 20th century, there were a number of national revolutions, of decolonizing revolutions. And so scholars were interested in how revolutions come about, what drives a population to not just rebel or become insurgent, but what what drives a population to attack their existing government and overturn it. And once that happens, what causes revolutions to radicalize? So the kinds of political issues that people faced in the 20th century shaped their focus on the first half of the revolution, the events that you, most of the events that you've just described from the taking of the Bastille in 1789 up to the defeat of Robespierre in the summer of 1794. So it's almost exactly five years. And that focus on the early revolution also means that we know more about the great figures of the early revolution. They're kind of the stars. And all I need to do, I think, here is mention Maximilien Robespierre. When you ask people, what, what do you associate with the French Revolution? They mention Robespierre's name. So this emphasis on how revolutions start and how they radicalize fosters more and more knowledge about the first five years. And we come to think that that's all there is about the revolution. But five more years go by between the fall of Robespierre and the advent of Napoleon. Why are those five years, the five years when I would argue the republic effectively destroys itself, why are those five years the five years that we should be looking at in the 21st century? Because in the 21st century, we face the threat of authoritarian governments. We face anti-democratic movements. We face all kinds of efforts to restrict free speech, to violate separations of church and state, to attack many of the ideals that were proclaimed and defended in the first half of the French Revolution. And these are the ideals that who, what people, I would argue, are still French revolutionaries are retreating from in the second half of the revolution. So as one of the first great Republican revolutions of the 18th century, and as the first revolution to institute popular democracy, the French Revolution offers us, I think, a really important example of how a republic, by attacking popular democracy and attacking the kinds of freedoms that it had installed, brings itself down. 
Before we get into all the historical narrative of the revolution, and again, there's a lot, let's introduce your protagonist, Gracchus Babouf, born Francois Noel Babouf in 1760. How did someone born in such impoverished conditions manage to become an intellectual in the final decades of an ancien regime that denied so much to so many? Babouf is an amazing figure. And I argue in my book that he is both exemplary and exceptional. I think in the early years of his life, his ability to educate himself, a lot of that comes from within. His father was his father was a bully. And I describe his father as having bullied education into his son. His father who had learned, who knew how to read, taught his son how to read. But I think Babouf describes his own condition as saying that his pride was so great that he wanted to demonstrate that he could learn to read and he could learn more. And I think he had extraordinary curiosity too. So he gained literacy from his father, and then he was able to apprentice um, to someone who was called what was called at the time a feudal notary. And what feudal notaries did was that they studied land holding records that belonged to nobles or people who owned what was considered noble property and found dues that might have fallen into disuse. And so they would recover these dues and say, oh, they would say to tenants on their land, well, you were paying these dues 100, 200 years ago they're due again. By getting his sort of foot on the bottom rung of the ladder as an apprentice to a feudal notary, Babouf puts himself in contact with new kinds of people. He goes to work in the house of a local noble who has a really extensive library, and he reads the books he gets access to. He moves to a town and enters into contact with an academy. An academy is kind of like simultaneously a learned society and a lending library. And he's able to borrow books through the post from a nearby academy, and he corresponds with the president of the academy, the man who is effectively kind of supervises it, and the, and the librarian. So Babouf takes advantage of every possible option there is under the old regime, in pre-revolutionary society, to inform himself. And the way, he, the way he does that is testifies to his tenacity, but it also, I think, reveals the limits of what he would have been able to do without the revolution. Because without the revolution, he probably never would have moved past that stage of being a thoughtful striver, someone who read what he could get his hands on, talked to whoever would answer him, uh, because many people didn't answer him. Um, He tried to, one town, he tried to to sort of join the local academy, tried to fit into local salons, and he was excluded by, by the elites. So without the revolution, I think he would have been an interesting, educated, feudal notary. But what the revolution does is that opened new doors. It created possibilities not only for Babouf to 
engage in political action in all kinds of new arenas. But it also gave him access to new kinds of information because the revolution opens the doors on publishing and print media. So he has access to all kinds of books and newspapers and pamphlets, and he's able to publish too. Yeah. What what sort of thinkers did Babouf and, and also others encounter on this path to radicalization? And how were those ideas circulating in the final decades of the Ancien Regime? I think he probably it's it's all it's hard to sort of sort out who he read when, but I I think he probably reads Jean Jacques Rousseau before the revolution, and Jean Jacques Rousseau praised small democracies and associated modest lifestyles with the kind of sort of social practices that people need to sustain a small democracy, kind of modest lifestyle that meant that everyone was was pretty much equal. Not Rousseau wasn't a radical egalitarian, but he does he does believe in a kind of rough, rustic, general equity and democratic practices for men. Um, not Rousseau is pretty clear that he doesn't want women to participate in politics. So Babeuf, I think, probably read Rousseau. He was introduced to a man named Collignon, who imagined a society without property that, according to Collignon, would allow everyone to have enough to eat, would have comfortable places to live. And Collignon said, if, if we have a society like this, there will be no crime. Babeuf later reads two other great philosophers of the old regime, great philosophers in terms of their thinking about equality and egalitarianism and utopianism, a philosopher named Mebli and another one named Morali. How does he encounter these ideas? Before the revolution, there is an official print network. Books are published that have the king's imprimatur or that the censor has said, has basically said, we will let these books pass and we won't pursue them. There are also a few newspapers that print reviews of books. There's also an underground literature, prohibited books that are smuggled in from other countries. How do people access them? There are these academies, there are about a dozen academies dotted across France that have lending libraries and that subsidize competitions where people can address practical or philosophical questions. So it's a way of exchanging ideas. There are cheap paperback books that circulate and often sort of bring popularized notions of some Enlightenment ideas to a broader audience. They also take popular tales to to a broader audience. So there are a whole range of ways that ideas circulate before the revolution. But it's important to remember that there is a system of censorship and there is a system that polices print media. So while philosophical ideas circulate, they don't circulate freely and not everyone has access to them. Literacy varies at different parts of France. What what was the economic system that, that Babouf came of age under, under the Ancien Regime? Who held wealth and power? And how was that wealth systematically extracted from the poor majority? And then how did that system 
set the stage for the fiscal crisis that sparked the French Revolution or set it into motion, maybe better put? Yeah, huge questions. Really, we can summarize the economic system of the old regime, pre-revolutionary France, as one that channels wealth from the mass of the population to the elites. And there are a number of ways by which this happens. The first thing that it's important to know is that nobles are exempt from the principal land tax in France. If you are if you have noble status or if you hold land that has a, a kind of label of noble status attached to it, you do not pay land tax. So the most important means by which the crown could tap landed wealth was sharply restricted. The largest landholders in the realm were exempt from paying that tax. Ordinary people paid taxes to the crown on land or land that they used because they often didn't own that land. They often had long-term agreements that allowed them to labor on the land in exchange for rent to the landholder. So ordinary people paid those taxes. They also paid a tithe. And the tithe was 5% of their harvest each year to the church. The tithe was particularly unpopular because the tithe collector came around when the crops were ripe. So people often had to hold off from bringing, bringing their crops in until the tithe collector had come by. Landholders, ordinary people who worked the land, also paid dues and fees to the landholders whose land they were working. Those dues and fees might be for passing their land to their successors, to their children, dues and fees just for the simple right of working the land. In many cases, too, they were still subject to these ancient practices that required them to maybe use the noble's mill to grind their grain, which meant that the noble has a monopoly on the mill. So there's no, you have to pay whatever he asks to have your grain ground. In many cases, nobles would restrict who could who could gather fallen wood or who could hunt in the forests around their land so they had there were all kinds of restrictions on what people who worked the land were able to do people who were in the cities were somewhat freer but they still were subject to taxes um, and dues and fees that were channeling wealth upward from ordinary people to the elites Babeuf grew up in the province of Picardy, which is in the northern part of France. It's kind of, it's on this plain between Paris and what is now Holland. And Picardy was a very wealthy, productive province. It had small industry, weaving, manufacturing. The land had lots of um, clear water. It was it was easy to farm, but because the landowners had been closing off their estates, sort of consolidating their estates, and hiring paid workers to labor on their estates, over the course of the 18th century, inequality intensifies 
and Picardy in particular. But the vast majority of people are struggling desperately. They're losing their land. They're not able to buy parcels for themselves. They're not able to rent other parcels for themselves. They're being reduced from people who can at least work a parcel of land that their families have held on to for generations. They're being reduced from that to simple day laborers. So the kind of social inequality that Babeuf sees in Picardy is representative of social inequality across France, but it's particularly intense. In 1789, the Constituent Assembly adopted the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, which found that sovereignty, quote, resides essentially in the nation, and that no body nor individual may exercise authority that does not expressly emanate from it. How novel was that conception of sovereignty and its expansion of democratic political power, however however limited, for its time? And, and how did that moment shape Babouf? So that declaration completely overturns notions of political organization. Until 1789, there were no regular representative institutions in France that ordinary citizens could elect delegates to. The a, a system of representation comes into being because the monarchy is going bankrupt. This system of taxation that prevented the crown from taxing the greatest portion of landed wealth in France was also preventing the crown from paying the bills for making war. So the crown, the, the, the king and his advisors tried every strategy they could think of to raise money, impose new taxes, touch the wealth of a nobility in order to keep the whole system running. And when they couldn't do that anymore, they had to call an estates general. An estates general was a representative assembly that all of the king's subjects, even in some cases women, could elect representatives to. So the estates general comes into being at the very beginning of 1789 because the crown has no alternative. The only way it's going to be able to keep going, the only way it's going to be able to avoid bankruptcy is by agreeing to consult with the people. And the last time the Estates General had gathered had been about 175 years before. So that gives you a sense of the, the, one, the one sort of representative body that allows the people to send delegates to consult with the king hadn't met for 175 years. Through a series of missteps by the crown and the determination of the representatives to the Estates General, a national assembly comes into being. And that the Estates General sort of transforms it into a it transforms itself into a national assembly and says, we represent the people. So this is this this is a complete upheaval in the traditional order. These deputies have asserted that the people from across France who elected them are the source of political power. We're no longer talking about a system in which 
a, a sort of idealized system in which the king is anointed by God or the king is the first among equals, but who are the equals? There are other nobles. This declaration metaphorically extends power to the entire nation. So even though France didn't institute universal male suffrage, a term I use advisedly because there are limitations on that, but even though France did not institute universal male suffrage until 1792, this declaration in 1789 that all men are born free and equal and that sovereignty resides in the nation is a fundamental reimagination of political organization. How did the fight for political equality move into this more radical struggle for economic equality in the early years of the revolution? One important early moment is after the commoners of the third estate force the other estates and the king to join them in a unicameral national assembly, that assembly then abolishes the feudal regime, including the church's privileges amid these widespread rural attacks on the landed elites. What contending ideas about economy, wealth, and property and property emerged during during that period and how and how did the political questions radicalize into economic ones? The taking of the bestie, which is a political event, meant to protect the new National Assembly from a coup. There are people, the Parisians fear that the king is is preparing to stage a coup against the National Assembly. And so they go looking for arms and ammunition in Paris, and they overthrow the Bastille, this huge um, monarchic prison that stands next to a working-class neighborhood at the edge of Paris. Um, And when they defeat this prison of the Bastille, the king backs down, and the National Assembly continues to work on its declaration of the rights of man and citizen and is able to sort of continue reforming political arrangements. But once you open the door, people are both excited and afraid. And what happens in the wake of the taking of the Bastille is as that news reaches certain rural regions in France, reaches the sort of French countryside, in some places, peasants and small townspeople become convinced that there are bandits roaming the countryside. And this is understandable. There's a lot of anxiety. Things, so much is changing. And there's this word of of sort of how much is changing in Paris. And so people in the countryside in quite a few places organize themselves to protect against these supposed bandits who they believe are roaming the countryside and are going to come after them. Often, once they're organized, they turn against noble chateau. And they will attack chateau they might loot them of goods this had been there had been an extremely hard summer and a poor harvest these events are taking place in late july and this is a this is a, a time of particular shortage the old harvest has kind of run out and the new harvest hasn't come in so these armed bands attack chateau they might loot them of their goods but they also take out records that nobles hold that explain what dues and fees and rents nobles can expect from the tenants on their land. 
and they destroy those. Just the sort of materials that Babouf once worked on yeah. as an apprentice. Exactly. So they so in many cases there are these these sort of armed crowds that are destroying these kinds of records. When the word gets back to the National Assembly in Paris, many of the deputies feel a real need to get out in front of this. They are afraid to sit by and let ordinary people attack this old regime system, the system of, of what they call feudalism. And so a small group of deputies gets together and they propose to abolish some of these dues and fees. And this happens on the night of August 4th, 1789. So it happens just a few weeks after the taking of the Bastille. They propose to abolish some of the dues and fees and the National Assembly, there's this, this, this kind of enthusiastic frenzy. They go on for hours. Deputies are renouncing their rights as, as nobles. They're <laughs> renouncing their neighbors' rights. And I, and I remember the, the first time I, I read about this, I, I was just amazed. Like, how, how do we explain this? What's going on here? So they renounce all of these dues and fees, and they declare the feudal system is abolished in its entirety. Now, in subsequent months and years, they try to, like, to backtrack from that. But they've, you know, they've let the genie out of the bottle. Maybe they can backtrack on some of these points, but they can't backtrack on all of them. And what they do by striking down the system of feudalism, feudalism was an old regime system of property. You didn't just own land. Those, a right to hunt rabbits in the forest was your own. It belonged to you. You might be a lawyer or a judge. You weren't a lawyer or a judge because you were appointed to that post. You were a lawyer or a judge because your father or your grandfather had bought that position and it belonged to you. So with the abolition of feudalism on August 4, 1789, the National Assembly is introducing not only a profound reorganization of property, but a complete reimagination of what property is. And that has a huge impact on Babeuf. Debates over economics were pivotal long before the revolution, particularly revolving around the price of grain. The dominant philosophers at the time were known as the physiocrats. And they argued that free they argued that free markets in grain would generate more wealth overall. By contrast, the philosopher Mabli, who, who you mentioned earlier, who greatly influenced Babouf, he argued that the state had a responsibility to ensure that the people were fed and that this required active state intervention. How did that debate over economics develop, leading, leading up to and then through the early years of the revolution as Sanculat organized around increasingly radical economic demands in the street? And then as the Jacobins bloodily purged their Girondin rivals on the eve of the terror. Yeah, Mably in the 1760s and 1770s, Mably criticizes the physiocrats. They're saying that they, they're, they're being abstract. They make the claim that when markets improve, everyone's going to be better off. And Mably says, 
what poor person can afford to wait for markets to improve? If prices go up, they, they will starve. Their, their children will starve. So, but I think it's important too to remember that the physiocrats, the physiocrats wanted free markets, but there were also conversations about other kinds of ways to ameliorate those markets. And what happens during the revolution is that as food shortages emerge and as prices begin to rise, these debates are renewed. What is the best way to answer the concerns of people who are growing grain? What is the best way to ensure that people in the cities have affordable food? That debate doesn't really become significant until 1792 and 1793. So this is a few years after the taking of the Bastille and the abolition of feudalism. Revolutionaries face two significant economic challenges in 1791 and 1792. In 1791, we have to look across the Atlantic for a minute because what happens in 1791 in France's sugar colony of Saint-Domingue, the country that we now know as Haiti, in Saint-Domingue, enslaved people rise up to free themselves. And when they do that, France's very lucrative colonial sugar trade collapses. So there are shortages of sugar and coffee because of colonial insurrections. France also goes to war. They declare war against Prussia and Austria in the spring of 1792. And that war quickly spreads until within six months, France is at war with countries on pretty much every border, and it's fighting a land war as well as a sea war, a naval war. <clears throat> and all of those events upset trade. They upset transport that brings grain to the cities. They cause prices to rise. And so the members of government and you mentioned the Girondins and the Jacobins. The Girondins and the Jacobins, who are the two sort of key parties in the assembly, have to begin to debate. How are they going to address rising prices and food shortages? And this debate has a particular edge because one of the groups they're most concerned to respond to are radical workers in Paris. Now, it's important to know that by this time, we no longer have a constitutional monarchy. By this time, there has been, there's a Republican revolution in August 1792. So as of August 1792, the monarchy was swept away and a new assembly came into being, the National Convention. And the National Convention was effectively both a legislative and an executive. And that is important for explaining the terror that came later. But the two, two leading factions in the National Convention are the Girondins and the Montagnard, or the Girondins and the Jacobins. There's this kind of overlap between Jacobins and Montagnard. Jacobins, it's a political club, um, but most Montagnard belong to this political club. So there's this dispute about how to deal with economic questions. 
And the Girondins don't want to control markets. They believe that it's important to have free markets. And they say that you, you have to have free markets so that people who grow crops can enjoy the profits from what they produce. That the best way to create a more equitable economy is by improving education and creating jobs. The Jacobins, the Jacobins are not that much different from the Girondins. They are also primarily, they would prefer freer markets, but they see their base as being in Paris and they want to tighten their alliance with Sanculette. So eventually they, they agree to more restrictions on markets, but they also, they and the Girondins begin to paint one another as traitors, really, traitors to the revolution. The Jacobins say of the Girondins, they hate the sans-culottes, they don't want, they, they don't trust the sans-culottes, and they're not willing to make the kinds of sacrifices that are necessary to save the Republic. The Girondins accuse the Jacobins of being too radical, attacking legitimate property rights, upsetting markets. So in terms of policy, for a long time, the Jacobins and the Girondins are not that different, but they become increasingly different because of rising political tensions and polarization. And that difference really comes to its fullest expression with the Jacobin expulsion and then persecution of the Girondin, and then the implementation of this new constitution and declaration of rights in 1793 that declares that, quote, society's aim is common good. Who expels the Girondin from the National Convention? Crowds of Parisians, crowds of sans-culottes surround the convention in late May of 1793 and demand that the deputies evict dozens of Girondins evict dozens of their colleagues from the convention. So this is an instance in which the crowd forces the hand of the assembly. But enforcing the hand of the assembly, it's not an entirely unwilling assembly. The Jacobins don't like this kind of legal excess, but they're also happy to take, um, take advantage of it. So once the Girondins have been expelled from the convention. The Jacobins can step up as the kind of leading fraction of the convention. The Jacobins are not the majority in the convention, but they are the most dynamic part of the convention. And it's also Jacobins who sit on the Committee of Public Safety, which becomes a kind of an executive power. It's a committee of 12 deputies who are elected each month and re-elected each month who act as kind of the executive arm of the National Convention. So that has a lot to do with both how the terror plays out and what members of the convention will say later about, about that. But what happens really from the time of the Republican Revolution in 17, in August 1792, and this intensifies after 
the Girondins are expelled, is that we see a convention that advertises itself as serving ordinary people. You see sort of cultural representations of ordinary people, whereas before the revolution, there were images of nobles, and they were kind of celebrated as as a sort of as cultural representatives after the Republican Revolution and through the rest of 1792 and 1793, sans-culottes become the exemplary figures of French society. So there's this kind of cultural dimension. But the other thing that happens is that the convention drafts and adopts a democratic constitution. And this is a constitution adopted in the summer of 1793, which strives for equity, not absolute equality, but equity. It's a constitution that says, like the constitution of 1791, it's a constitution that says, all men are born free and equal in rights, and it guarantees a right to property. But it also guarantees a right to work, a right to assistance if you're not able to work, a right to education. And there is also implicitly among many Jacobins the idea that you not only have a right to work and a right to education, you also have a right to food. And the right to food takes precedence over the right to hold land. And that sets up up a new series of debates about property and citizenship and what governments owe their citizens. The last thing that's important to know about the Constitution of 1793 is that within days of adopting it, the National (laughs) Convention suspends it. (laughs) And they say, we're at war. We can't possibly institute this Constitution right now. And that's going to set up the other part of the way that critics talk about these years, talk about 1793 and 1794. And the relationship between equity and rule of law. How did the popular democratic energies that brought the Jacobins to power and by 1794 and that put forward this more radical egalitarian vision of the common good, how by 1794 did it get turned into a terror that not only are oppressed and executed royalists, reactionaries, and their Girondin rivals, but but that also targeted the very same radical left, the Sanculat and the Enragé, whose mass democratic mobilization in the streets had enabled the Jacobin rise to power in the first place. Yeah, this is the tragedy of those years. So again, as I said when talking about the night of August 4th and the riots in the countryside that preceded the night of August 4th, once you take the lid off, once you say, we can change the government, and then you say, we can reorganize property, not surprisingly, expectations rise. And people begin to organize and agitate for more rights. So over the course of several years, in Paris in particular, Parisians have all kinds of ways of expressing their political wishes. There are lots of political clubs that spring up all over Paris. And those 
serve not only as kind of organizational hubs, but they also serve as places to talk about politics and as places to learn about politics. Paris is divided into 48 sections, basically 48 kind of administrative units. Each section has its own assembly. And anyone who wants to go sit in on a sectional assembly and talk politics can do so. When there are crises, people flood into the sectional assemblies and organize and march on the national convention. There are hundreds of newspapers circulating. There's just just this wave of political information. People sing. They sing political songs that not only announce their allegiance, but share information about events that have taken place. So there's all kinds of information, all kinds of ways of organizing. And um, the other thing that's important is that there are deputies in the convention who are sympathetic to the kind of democratic impulses of the sans-culottes, who are sympathetic to their economic demands. We want work. We want affordable food. And who understand as well that they can springboard from this kind of popular energy in the city that surrounds the National Convention. I mean, the National Convention is right in the middle of the most radical city in France. So when sectional assemblies come to the convention to make demands, or when they raise crowds that surround the convention, as the crowds did when the Girondins were expelled, they have allies in the convention who can translate the energy of the crowd into legislation. And that's hugely important for kind of pushing forward demands for greater democratic process, greater economic equity. But the other thing that happens is that the whole nation is flying apart. France, by the summer of 1793, is in crisis. It's fighting wars on every front, a land war and a naval war. There is counter-revolution and civil war in the West. Catholics who who don't want their don't want themselves or their sons to be drafted to fight in an army for a republic they don't accept. There are municipal insurrections in some of the big cities in France because these cities want more say in national government. And you've got the sans-culotte crowd in Paris agitating and making demands of the convention. And so what happens in the fall of 1793 is that the convention makes a number of concessions to the sans-culottes, concessions about, about really the, the sort of pers- uh, gathering food from the countryside and pursuing people who are defined as counter-revolutionaries. But that's kind of the last con- concession, because what the deputies in the convention determine is that the only way they're going to unify the nation is if they can quell all of these different competitors with its power. So the National Convention wants to drive the armies back from the borders of France. They want to they defeat civil war in the West. They want to get rid of municipal insurgency. But they also 
want to settle down the sans culotte. They want to kind of disperse their power and demobilize them. And so what we see in the fall of fall and winter of 1793 and the winter and spring of 1794 is a growing assault on people who have been defined as enemies of the revolution. And one of the first things the National Convention does is they restrict how often sectional assemblies can meet. They say they they offer they offer to give a a 40 sous indemnity to any working person who wants to come to a sectional assembly. So by offering to pay anyone who wants to attend the sectional assembly, they say, we're doing this because we're friends of the working people. And if you're a working person, you can't go to the sectional assembly if you're going to miss work. So we're going to give you, we're going to, we're going to give you a subsidy to do that. But by doing that, first they attract people to the sectional assemblies who are not the fire-breathing political diehards that had been dominating up to that point. So it's a way of diluting sort of political activism. The other thing they do is that they say, well, if we're paying subsidies, we really can't afford to pay subsidies for meetings that take place every day. So let's ensure that the sectional assemblies will only meet twice every 10 days because they've, they've given up the, the sort of Christian system of the week and they now have what's called a decade. So time is organized into periods of 10 days instead of seven days. And they say, okay, only two sectional assembly meetings um, every decade. So they are attacking the institution that best serves the sans-culotte political organizing. And then they go after, they go after radicals, the enragés, are some of the most radical figures in Paris in this year. Um, they arrest some of them. Some of them flee. They also, the Jacobins, this is also the point at which the Jacobins closed down women's clubs. What they say is women really don't belong in politics. But I think it's, it's pretty plausible, too, that this is a way of demobilizing another part of the Paris population. So... The Jacobins begin to demobilize their most fervent supporters because they see that as a way of protecting the kind of revolution that they're going to affect. But the problem is in demobilizing their most fervent supporters, they create circumstances that endure even after they fall from power. And they create a kind of, they initiate a demobilization that their far more conservative successors will capitalize on. In July 1794, as more moderate Jacobins began to fear that that they might be next, Robespierre was shouted down in the National Convention, arrested, and guillotined, eliminating the dictatorship of the Jacobin Committee of Public Safety and ultimately the next year, installing this new governing body known as the Directory. What was Thermidor? What what were these political forces that brought about an end to the terror? And what vision did it put forward for France? So Thermidor lasts for about a year. It lasts, we can say it lasts from roughly when Robespierre falls until in the summer of 1794 until the fall of 1795. There have been a lot of people 
who have tried to redeem some of the events that happened this period of Thermidor. They have made arguments that one of the things that a lot of people are dealing with is a sense of grief and trauma from their experience of the terror. There is value to that argument. But what stands out for me, and I think in large part because I see Thermidor through the perspective of Babov's life, is how Thermidor becomes an occasion to demonize everything that came before, everything that happened in 1793-94, and to demonize not only Jacobins, but Sanculot. It's important to remember that the men who shout down and arrest and execute Robespierre, with, I might add, 100 of his allies, none of whom are tried, they pretty much wipe out the Paris Municipal Council. So, the, But the men who shout down and execute Robespierre and his allies had themselves participated in everything that took place up to that point. Robespierre and 11 other men sat on the Committee of Public Safety, which acted as an executive body. But they were reelected every single month by their colleagues in the National Convention. The laws that represent the laws of terror were laws that the National Convention accepted by a majority vote. So everyone in the National Convention is implicated. Some people are really badly implicated because there are deputies to the National Convention who had been sent out into the countryside, basically as watchdogs over army contingents or over provincial areas. And some of these deputies who were sent out into the countryside were recalled precisely because of their excesses. They indulged in exceptional violence. They engaged in extortion. And there are two men in particular, two deputies in particular, Fréron and Talion. And Fréron and Talion are, they're weather vanes. They, they're exceptionally good at sort of judging the political temperature of the moment and bending to it. So what happens after the defeat of Robespierre is that all of these deputies in the convention are trying to save themselves. And so they begin to develop this language that says, well, it was Robespierre's fault. And Ferrand and Talion are kind of out in front on this. It was Robespierre's fault. He tyrannized all of us. He forced us to, to breach the law. And so there comes there's this, this sort of wave, this growing wave of reaction against the Jacobins and against what happened in 1793, 1794. And this kind of wave of reaction is encouraged by a trial for atrocities that takes place in the fall of 1794. And these atrocities are committed under the supervision of a Jacobin deputy who'd been sent to the town, to the city of Nantes. So there's this kind of growing revulsion against the Jacobins, and it spreads to Sanculot as well. The Sanculot come to be demonized as well. But at the same time, and, and I'm not saying that there are not legitimate, there are many legitimate criticisms, because the rule of law 
was violated in 1793-94. The Jacobins rode roughshod over the rule of law, as did the rest of the convention. But at the same, but instead of correcting violations of the rule of law and restoring democratic process, because remember the Constitution had been suspended more than a year before, the convention refuses to hold new elections. There had been no elections since September of 1792. The convention refuses to hold new elections. They will not activate the democratic constitution of 1792. What they do is that they get rid of price controls. Jacobins had imposed what was called a maximum, which set the price of, set up a limit on the price of bread. The members of the convention abolished the maximum on the 24th of December. So as France is heading into winter, the convention gets rid of price controls. Now, on the one hand, the convention, deputies in the convention, nobody really had a good understanding of the sort of broader function of an economy and the nature of inflation. So we can say they didn't know that there was going to be this explosive inflation if they got rid of price controls. But what's What's more damning is that Paris experiences one of the hardest winters in decades. The rivers freeze, so it's not possible to transport wood or coal. Prices go through the roof, and poor people starve to death. So what happens in the spring is that there are two insurrections in the spring of 1795, and Paris crowds demand that the convention activate the democratic constitution of 1793 and that they make affordable bread available. And the convention responds to the second of these demonstrations by sending police and reactionary young men who call themselves gilded youth into working class neighborhoods to arrest and disarm working class people. And then the other thing the convention does is they have appointed they had appointed a committee the committee of 11 to prepare to activate the democratic constitution of 1793 and the committee of 11 takes it upon itself to abolish the democratic constitution of 1793 and draft a new constitution and that's the constitution that brings the directory into being and the 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 fact that this abolition of the Constitution of 1793 and the drafting of the Constitution of 1795, the peculiar circumstances, the illegitimate circumstances under which this takes place, have a lot to do with what Babeuf and the equals argue about that Constitution under the Directory. And then the Constitution is adopted and the Directory is elected and it comes to sit in the fall of 1795. It, it was around this time after Thermidor that Babouf started his newspaper, The People's Tribune, and it called for a restoration of democracy and civil liberties as the way to put an end to, quote, ceaseless, chilling, repressive terror. But he soon grew pretty disillusioned with the state of things, writing, quote, when I thundered passionately to bring down the monstrous edifice of Robespierre's system, I did not imagine I was helping to create a new structure that would prove equally disastrous to the people. I did not foresee that my demands for leniency, for the abolition of slavery, despotism, and barbarism, for the greatest freedom of written and spoken opinion, would be used to sap the republic to its very foundation. And he not only grew disillusioned, he ended up 
in prison. How did that experience in prison lead him to develop his thinking toward this astonishing novel innovation, the abolition of private property? And what what was that theory? And how did he think society could and should operate? As you've suggested, Babeuf saw the fall of Robespierre as an opportunity for France, as an opportunity to restore democracy and the rule of law that had been violated in the preceding year. And so, right, he creates this newspaper backed by Fréron and Talion. So these, these, um, these wild reactionaries... But when he first made an alliance with them, he, he didn't understand what their real political objectives were. So the quote you read, um, he writes this as he's falling out with Freron and Talion. And basically what he's saying is, having thought that the end, that the, that the sort of execution of Robespierre meant that democracy would be restored, but the economic measures that have been instituted in the preceding year would go on. He found not only had democracy not been restored, but that price controls had been were being lifted, that sans-culottes were being demonized, that more was being taken from working people. Now they were not only losing their civil liberties, they were losing their economic rights and a decent economic condition. And so he publishes an article in which, in which he says, should Paris become insurgent? And he kind of, he, he's kind of towing the line there. And he, he kind of hints that, in fact, he thinks crowds should turn out and demand that the convention see to the needs of ordinary working people. And so Freyron and Talion have already denounced Babeuf to the police. So he's arrested and he's sent to this prison in northern France. He's sent to a prison in the city of Arras, um, which interestingly is the city that Robespierre came from. Um, but it is no longer the kind of bourgeois city that it once was. It's a city that is filling with prisons and the prisons are filling with old Jacobins and activists on culotte who are being purged and arrested and confined. So in the prison in Arras, Babeuf meets a soldier named Charles Germain. And the two of them become friends. They're in different prisons, but they smuggle letters back and forth to one another. And they discuss democracy, but they also discuss social equality, social justice. They have seen this terrible inflation. They saw that that's sort of the beginnings of it. And what Babeuf, they haven't, and it, I think it's important to say they did not see the worst of it. Babeuf was in prison when the worst of it struck. But they talk about economic equality, and Babeuf says, we need to find a way to improve the lives of ordinary people. And Charles Germain says, comes, comes back at Babeuf with what's really kind of a Rousseauist argument, like luxury is a bad thing, we need to get rid of luxury. 
And Babeuf says, he says, well, let's, let's make a rather more interesting argument. He says, if we just say luxury is bad, people who support the free market will say, no, 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 markets need to grow and society is going to be better with, with free markets. And he says, let's be realistic. Free markets may advance economies, but we all know the terrible inequity with which those economies distribute their rewards. And here he's thinking, I think he must be thinking back to, to Picardy, to what he saw in Picardy. Picardy had, under the old regime, Picardy had an expanding economy, but very few people were benefiting from it. So Babeuf suggests to Germain that what they really need to do is they need to create a movement that will abolish property, completely abolish property, not create sort of communal farms, not redistribute land, just get rid of the idea of private property. Let everyone continue to do the kind of work that they have been doing, whether that's farming or making boots or weaving cloth. And whatever they produce, they will hand over to common storehouses and those goods will then be redistributed with absolute equality. Where did Babeuf get an idea like this? For a brief time in 1793, Babeuf had worked for the municipal administration in Paris, helping to distribute food in Paris and supply food to the armies. So Babeuf had seen a government redistributing food, taking it in from the countryside and ensuring that people had enough in the cities and sending food to feed the armies. And I think that that's really what's at the back of his mind. He says, because the other thing he says is not only to sort of just to just kind of unfettered markets distribute goods with real injustice and inequity, but, un, but free markets, unregulated markets are also full of middlemen. And middlemen take such a huge cut that people on both sides of the transaction suffer. People who produce don't get what they should for what they're producing, and people who consume rarely have enough money to buy what they need. So he's, so he's using this model from 1793, 1794, using this kind of Jacobin model of distribution and army supply to make a case for abolishing property. Hi, this is Olufemi Otaiwo, and you're listening to The Dig. You can support the podcast at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is A Spectre Haunting on the Communist Manifesto by China Mieville. Few written works can so confidently claim to have shaped the course of history as Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels' Communist Manifesto. Since first rattling the gates of the ruling order in 1848, this incendiary pamphlet has never ceased providing fuel for the fire in the hearts of those who dream of a better world. In this strikingly imaginative introduction, acclaimed writer China Mieville provides readers with a guide to understanding the manifesto and the many specters it has conjured. 
As Mike Davis puts it, in Mievel's brilliant interpretation, the manifesto is like a great comet whose periodic return blinds the sky with its light and urgency. Read this and be dazzled by its contemporaneity. A Spectre Haunting by China Mievel, out now from Haymarket Books and available at haymarketbooks.org where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. It wasn't just Democrats on the left who who were disenchanted with, with Thermidor. There was a major royalist revolt in October 1795, the, the Vendemiaire insurrection, which was crushed, incidentally, by a young general named Napoleon Bonaparte. That right-wing reaction, however, did briefly cause the convention to make a sort of peace with Democrats, including by releasing Babouf and others from prison. It was also in that same period that the directory was established, followed by its new constitution that eliminated the right to insurrection, abolished universal male suffrage, rights to education work, fair wages, and public assistance. And, And yet still, in in this early period of the directory, public life and politics really thrived, and, and Democrats and Republicans gathered in the Pantheon Club to plot the way forward. And you had former Jacobins like Pierre-Antoine Antonel, who welcomed the directory with an open mind, but, but not Babouf, who, who wrote, quote, Who are these optimists, these phony patriots who shout at the top of their lungs, everything is for the best in the best of all possible worlds? What do you mean everything is fine? I see not the slightest evidence that this is so. Doesn't a pound of bread still cost 16 francs? A pound of meat 20? Is there any sign that the institutions that rob and strangle ordinary people will soon change? And it was in this environment, if I remember correctly, that that Babouf began to publicly call for that abolition of private property, this theory that he developed during his incarceration. And he described this demand as building on the Jacobin project, which did not sit well with former Jacobins like Antonel. Where did where did Babouf fit into this broader democratic politics of that moment after the after Thermidor transitioned to the directory and he was released from prison? And and what accounts for this divergence on the left over how to appraise the early period of the directory? He has such a, a particular vision. He's really a kind of damn the torpedoes sort of person, which I think has a lot to do, explains a lot about what happens in his life. So (laughs) to answer your question, to kind of go back to, so this Vendemir insurrection, these are right-wing people, right-wing men mostly, um, exclusively right-wing men, who protest a law that says that two-thirds of the National Convention, so the National Convention governed through the terror. It also governed after Thermidor. But this law said two-thirds of the convention had to be either elected or appointed to the directory's legislative houses. So this meant that people who'd been in government during the terror were going to enter into the directory. So these right-wing men stage an insurrection, which, bon- which Napoleon Bonaparte helps put down. But what that means is that the national government, which had been kind of drawing closer and closer to right-wing forces, 
in the preceding year, decides to take its distance from the right after the directory is elected. So they want to take their distance from the right, which means they reach out and become friendly again with men on their left who were old Jacobins. I call them Democrats at this point because the Jacobin Club doesn't exist anymore. The Jacobin Clubs have been have been shut down. So there's these men on the left who I call who I call Democrats. And so the directory kind of makes kind of you know approaches them and puts like gives them some of them government posts, subsidizes some of their newspapers. And they're in a tight spot. They have been vilified for a year. They no longer have the kind of government power they once had. And the new government that's come into being, even if they have sort of small administrative positions or they're receiving subsidies for their newspapers, they're still kind of outliers. So what are their options? Some of them, I think, are willing to go along with the directory simply because they don't think they have any better options. Someone like Antonel, who had been a deputy in the National Convention, who was a journalist, um, who was himself born a noble. Antonel's a really interesting figure. But anyway, someone like Antonel says, we have our backs against the wall, but this is also an opportunity. This is an opportunity to rethink left-wing politics and consider how those of us who are outside of the government might be able to encourage it to liberalize, liberalize economically, liberalize politically, sort of restore, perhaps ultimately restore democracy, certainly restore a right to primary education. So in the the first six months after the directory is elected, there is this among a sort of political and cultural and social elite, there is this kind of sense of some sort of revival, some sort of possibility of renewal. So this is going on when Babov is released from prison. And one of the first things Babov learns, even before he's released from prison, he's sent to a Paris prison before he, from Arras. He's sent to a Paris prison before he's released. And while he's in that prison, he learns that because of the inflation of the preceding year, his daughter starved to death. She was really young, just, I think, five or six years old. And she was hungry, and her mother left her alone. It was a terrible death. Her mother left her alone with a pot of cooked potatoes that was supposed to feed everyone. And she, she was so hungry, she ate all of the potatoes. And her digestive system couldn't process them. And so she lingered for two months, and she died. So Babuf learned that while he was in prison, thinking about a new way to guarantee social equality, and talking to these other activists, he didn't know any of this when he was in the Arras prisons because the authorities in the Arras prisons were holding all of his mail. They weren't giving him any news from Paris. So he gets back to this. So he gets to Paris and he learns that 
His daughter has starved to death, and he can see that his, his other children, his two sons, are emaciated and weakened. I think that this personal experience, I think it breaks him in a really important way. I think he has clear logical reasons for making the kind of arguments that he does, but he's enraged that a government has implemented policies that killed his little girl. He sees the suffering of ordinary people because it's not just Babeuf's family that has suffered. There are people throughout France who are suffering because this inflation goes on and on and paper money was worthless. So Babeuf kind of sees what ordinary people in France are experiencing. Yes, political and social and cultural elites in Paris are experiencing this kind of revival and new possibilities for free conversation. But ordinary people are homeless and hungry, and many of them commit suicide in despair. Some of them kill off their entire families. And so that's what he focuses on. And so that's why when he gets out of prison, some of the Democratic journalists welcome him back. They say, oh, Babouf, he's a really important journalist. We know he's like a fire eater, but, you know, we're, we're really glad to have him back. And then he publishes the, the column that you read in which he rages against these people. And after he says, isn't food still out of sight for ordinary people? He calls these other journalists <laughs> out by name <laughs> and says, and like names each of the editors of the most important Democratic newspapers and says, and, and calls them names. So he... He, he burns his bridges with a kind of democratic mainstream and goes ahead and resurrects his paper, the People's Tribune, and begins to address his readers, his newspaper subscribers and people who might buy his papers in the street, people who might hear his newspapers read in this political pantheon club or who might hear his newspapers being read out loud in a cafe – and those are the people he's speaking to. Um, and those are the people to whom he makes this proposal that they should abolish property and says, and the Jacobins are my, my model. The Jacobins would have done this. And let's sort of follow in their footsteps. So Babouf holds up the Jacobins as his predecessors. Former Jacobins, including Pierre Antonel, do not like this. They were in favor of greater social equity. They were not levelers. They were not radical egalitarians. But because they were in favor of price controls, because they were in favor of closing the gap between rich and poor, their opponents in the center and on the right, accuse them of being levelers. They say, oh, you people don't respect property. You want to do away with property. So when Babouf comes along and says, I want to abolish property, and I'm just following out something that the Jacobins initiated, these Democrats are concerned. And so they speak up and they say, this is not a good idea. Like, this is not, abolishing property is, is not a realistic project. And they're also concerned that this, that being identified with 
a actually avowedly leveling project is going to elicit repression. Exactly. Yeah. So perhaps perhaps unsurprisingly, the directory soon turns against Babouf, even even arresting his wife when Babouf escaped capture. And then there's a cycle of increasing radicalization met with more repression, including the closing of the Pantheon Club. I think soon after one of Babouf's allies read some of Babouf's most radical material on the floor of the club. And that, in turn, emboldened reactionaries to to the directory's right to attack the directory for failing to suppress what they saw to be this extremely menacing revolutionary left. And ultimately, Babouf organizes this conspiracy, later known as the Conspiracy of Equals, to overthrow the directory, which which would capture him and his fellow conspirators before they ever got the chance to try. And they also captured many, many, many invented conspirators as well. How did the crisis escalate to the point where Babouf and his followers embarked on such a risky endeavor? And and what explains why the directory cracked down so savagely, not just against the conspirators, but get it but against, but also against this this broad swath of the democratic left after the conspiracy was betrayed. So, as Babouf is publishing these columns, in which he is saying private property should be abolished, he's also saying he's also defending the Constitution of 1793, the Democratic Constitution. An important thing to keep in mind for what comes later. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 And. I actually think that the directory is more concerned about his attacks on the Constitution of 1795, the Constitution that's brought the directory into being, because the fact of the matter is it wasn't legally instituted. The committee that drafted the Constitution of 1795, that was not their their remit. That was not what they were organized to do. But so the police go after Babouf. He escapes. He's in hiding. And... um, his, some of his allies stir things up in the Pantheon Club, including reading an article from his People's Tribune in which he basically says Robespierre's biggest mistake was not to kill off all of the nobles. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it doesn't go down well. And so a police, a, like a policeman who's there, because of course there are police spies all over Paris, this, this police spy says, Someone read out this column and people applauded. And so the directory, the directory does not want to see a resurrection of the sans culotte movement. They do not want to see an explosion of political clubs. They do not want to see the restoration of sectional assemblies. And so they close down the Pantheon Club. There is a kind of loophole in the Constitution that allows them to close down public associations that are considered contrary to public order. So they say, well, the Pantheon Club is disturbing public order. So they close it down. But in in closing it down, they abolish the most important public arena for their most virulent and energetic critics. So they close down the one arena in which they could have kept an eye on these people. Also, in closing down that arena, they radicalize quite a few people who belong to the Pantheon Club and drive them underground. 
And so it's not long after the Pantheon Club is closed that a number of Babov's friends and political allies gather with him and they determine that the only way to deal with the directory is to overthrow the government, excite a new revolution that's going to restore democracy and sweep away private property. How effective, how widespread is this conspiracy? I think maximum a few dozen people. In, in Paris, maybe two dozen people. When, but what they do is they begin publishing pamphlets and pasting up posters around Paris that call on Parisians to revolt, to rise up against the directory. And they say, we owe no loyalty to the Constitution of 1795. Let's rise up and restore the democratic Constitution of 1793. And sometimes they say, add almost as an afterthought, because they're really concerned with restoring democracy first and foremost. And some of them also say, and once we've restored the Constitution of 1793, we'll be able to get rid of property. So the directory is really concerned about this. They're afraid that this is going to create a new revolution. There is a police force that they have established in Paris that's supposed to keep public order. And the police force is becoming more radical. And when the directory tries to send the police to um, join armies fighting at the front, the police revolt. So there is this kind of growing fear, not just on the part of the government, but within the press as well. You see people on the right, but also some people to the left of center saying, there's a lot of, there's a lot of disorder right now. Like, something needs to be done. And what finally happens is this soldier named Georges Grisel. Grisel comes to one of the one of the directors of the Republic. The executive consists of five men. And so one of those men is a, is a guy named Lazar Carnot. So Grisel comes to Lazar Carnot and he says, there's a, there's a conspiracy afoot and I can tell you who's in it and where it's taking place and ultimately I can lead you to these people. And so Grisel goes to work for the directory and leads the police to two separate locations. And in one location, they find Babeuf um, and his ally, Filippo, Filippo Buonarroti, and a secretary. Finds, so he finds Babeuf and an ally and a secretary who's helping them copy records. And then at another house in another neighborhood that's about a mile away, the police find about 10 other people, among whom is a sitting deputy named Drouet. And a national hero who, as a as a stableman, had caught the king trying to escape during the the famous flight to Varennes. Yes, exactly, exactly. So he's a he's a democrat and he's a hero, and he has the extra advantage of having been. It might not have seemed an advantage at the time, but he does have the advantage of having been a prisoner in Austria during the terror. So. He he doesn't have anything to apologize for. A prisoner, a prisoner of war. Yeah, right. So so Drouet, Drouet has all of these qualities that 
make him kind of an ideal heroic figure. Like impeccable revolutionary bona fides. Yeah. So when the directory arrests all of these people, it says it really it boosts itself. And it boosts itself because it's facing all kinds of difficulties. It's facing a sort of a slacking economy, like declining um, declining value of, of paper money. There's all kinds of sort of disorder in the countryside. So the directory sees these arrests as an opportunity to enhance its reputation. And so it says these were terrible criminals on the eve of exciting this conspiracy that was going to renew the terror. But we stopped it. A lot of people sort of praise the directory, but the, there are two problems. First, it uses the arrest of Babuf and the others as an excuse to start pursuing old Jacobin and Sanculat militants. The gover government and police arrest close to 300 people in succeeding weeks. And there's this problem of Drouet. <laughs> in including that Babouf just like, it, it seems hard to believe that he was part of the conspiracy because Babouf just wrote Drouet letters berating him all the time. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, he, he, yeah he, he sort of, he sends these letters to, these letters to, Drouet, that are found in Drouet's wastebasket, you know, <laughs> in, in which he kind of berates Drouet for, for not giving the speech that Beboeuf wrote for him. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, it, it doesn't appear to be a close relationship. But so, so Democrats are really concerned because what they see is, one, police are using word of this conspiracy as an excuse to harass and detain old Democrats like themselves. And two, they cannot believe that Drouet was part of this conspiracy. So they start posing questions. Well, how could Drouet be part of this conspiracy? And they point to evidence like this torn up letter from Bebov to Drouet. And they raise questions about, well, how how widespread, how realistic was the conspiracy? And this is where Antonel comes back in the picture because Antonel says, "I like this is not a realistic project. Or even harsher, mocking Babouf, quote, that Babouf knows nothing and has in fact never known anything is obvious. Yes. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, can, I mean, with friends like that, like, yeah, it's a pretty barbed defense. And they really don't care about Babouf. I think had the directory just arrested Babouf and his closest cronies, I think, I think a lot of Democrats would have looked away. But because they've arrested Drouet and because they're harassing and detaining hundreds of Democrats across France and because they answer questions about the case of Drouet by saying only a traitor or a conspirator would pose questions like that, the directory kind of amps, continues to amp up the tension around the case. Most of the accused proclaimed their innocence. And, and as you were just saying, these, these moderate Democrats frame the conspiracy as wrongheaded, but also just fantastically harmless. But Babouf confessed immediately and proudly telling his interrogator, quote, 
Convinced as I am that the present government is oppressive, I was allied with every Democrat in the republic. And then shortly after this, Babouf wrote directly to the directors, quote, Do you consider it beneath you to negotiate with me as one power to another? You have seen the vast federation of which I am the center. You see that my party equals yours. You understand the terrible consequences. I am sure all of it makes you tremble. And this was, of course, self-aggrandizing and perhaps delusional. But was he also pursuing some some tactical objective, or, or had he simply convinced himself of the fantasy that conditions remained ripe for the sort of for the sort of popular democratic insurrections that had been so pivotal throughout the revolution's early years? Yeah. So thanks for those quotes because it's a reminder that even if the directory is trying to, trying to boost itself, Babouf plays a part in <laughs> ramping things up by saying right by saying confirming and intensifying all of the director's worst fears. Like, yes, I'm conspiring, and um, I have allies all over France. He later says, when he's asked about this in court, he says, well, I was trying to frighten the directory so they wouldn't pursue innocent Democrats, which is exactly what the directory did. After he spoke up, they pursued innocent Democrats. The other thing that Babouf believes is that he thinks that his arrest and the arrest of his allies, people, the the true allies call themselves equals, and they come to be known as the equals. So Babouf thinks that he that the arrest of him of him and the and his the, the rest of the equals are going to rouse the rest of the population. That people that sort of ordinary French people are going to see the sort of duplicity of the directory. They're going to see this; these activists for democracy are in danger, and that this is going to be the event that sets off a new revolution. So he has a political strategy. Now, we can talk about whether or not that political strategy is delusional, but he, he does have a sort of greater idea in mind that really this is the moment, this is a crisis, and every Democrat should seize on this crisis to revive revolution. Babouf's delusion also reflected a, a vanguardist conception of political action. The, the Equals Act Creating a Directory of Insurrection read, quote, When a people is in full enjoyment of its rights and liberty is triumphant, no one may act for the general will without consulting the people and receiving its consent. But, quote, that is not so when the people is enchained. Then it is just and necessary that the most courageous assume the dictatorship of the insurrection, take the initiative, adopt the glorious title of conspirators for liberty, and install themselves as redemptive magistrates for their fellows. So, Babouf at this most radical moment seems to have also taken a conservative turn away from popular power. And and ironically, it was precisely that moment's state of popular demobilization that made his conspiracy totally unworkable in the first place. So even though Babouf on one level had convinced himself that popular insurrection was as possible as ever, which it wasn't, did, did he also at least implicitly acknowledge that this was not true? something 
he perhaps even subconsciously made sense of by way of developing this more elitist theory of insurrection? This is something I have really wrestled with, this dimension of Babuf's thought at this moment in time, because he is, until this time, such an advocate for democracy. So why endorse a dictatorship of insurrection? I think that he's terrified that a door is closing, that if they don't act quickly, the chance to restore a popular republic and create a society without property, that opportunity is going to vanish. I also think, as I said before, his experience when he left prison and found out that his daughter had died and his children, his other children, were famished and emaciated, I think that did something to him. If you look at his journalism from before that moment and after that moment, he's not only angrier, but he doesn't reason, I think, with the same acumen. So I think that he's driven by fear and rage. But I think he's also begun to question the best way to bring about a revolution. And here I think it's relevant that two of his closest allies at this point are themselves old Jacobins and men who are political administrators in 1793 and 1794. So Babeuf has these two allies, Augustin d'Arthez and Philippe Buonarroti. And those two were definitely Robespierreist. They believed in that you needed a centralized power at the top to make the revolution work. And I think Babeuf has a lot of political conversations with them, and he comes to the conviction. He had been coming to this conviction even before he was imprisoned, but it certainly solidifies during the conspiracy that you need a figure like Robespierre to galvanize the revolution. And so he says, he says at one point during the conspiracy that, that Robespierre's government was diabolically well imagined. I think he's, he has so, he's really losing his faith in the capacity of ordinary people to start the revolution and carry it forward. But I think he still recognizes that the people have a role to play. And it's kind of hard to know. I mean, I often ask, what if, what if he had, what if he had lived another thirty years? How, how would his politics have continued to evolve? The directory charged Babouf and the equals with essentially plotting a new terror, and perhaps not without reason, <laughs> given some of the evidence, which included a document creating a directory of insurrection known as the Secret Directory of Public Safety, which pretty clearly echoed Robespierre's Committee of Public Safety during the terror. But 
But the directory, along with other moderates and reactionaries, they saw the terror not as the result of the chaos pressures and panic of war, both both foreign and civil, but rather, once again, as the consequence of too much democracy. And and in those early years, Babouf did seem ambivalent about revolutionary violence. While he was in Paris in 1789, a crowd beheaded the royal minister, Joseph Foulon, and Babouf wrote about it to his wife, Marianne, quote, I understand that the people take justice into their own hands, which I approve so long as that justice is satisfied by punishing the guilty. But must it be so cruel? Punishments of every sort, quartering, torture, the wheel, the stake, the whip, the post, executioners everywhere, have corrupted us. Instead of policing us, our masters turned us into barbarians, because that is what they are themselves." But he, like others, had warmed up to the terror in retrospect. You write of Democrats in the San Culats during, during Thermidor, quote, As the cold, drawn, hungry poor watched the wealthy reactionaries enjoy fine meals, warm dwellings, and glittering entertainments while denouncing the Jacobin terror, they began to recall, Robes- they began to recall Robespierre's reign as one that had offered them work, bread, and respect. And so... In the trial, in response to this accusation that he wanted to resurrect the Jacobin tear, Babouf countered by, by alleging, in essence, that the real terror should be sought elsewhere in this everyday violence and humiliation inflicted on the poor. How did Babouf interpret the tear, given that those on whose behalf he spoke, the radicalized menu peuple, that both abetted its development and intensification and finally fell victim to it, and then how did this contest over the meaning of the terror shape the unfolding trial and its public reception? And then lastly, what other interpretations of the terror did the contest between Babouf on the equals on one side and the directory on the other, what other interpretations did that all crowd out and occlude? During the terror which we can say lasted from, say, the spring of 1793 to the summer of 1794, a couple of different things happened. There was this democratic constitution that was never enacted. The government that was later identified as Robespierre's government, wasn't just Robespierre's government, but the government made sure that people had enough to eat. They created national workshops, so there was employment. So there were social policies that benefited ordinary people. And there was, in theory at least, the promise of universal male suffrage. And I say universal male suffrage, like any free man over the age of 25 could vote, um, which means that enslaved people were excluded. So on the one hand, there was this democratic constitution that hadn't been enacted. There was universal male suffrage. There There were social policies designed to foster equity. On the other hand, there were deepening violations of rule of law. No elections because the Constitution had been suspended. And the Revolutionary Tribunal, which tried people who were accused of counter-revolutionary activity, was given more and more and more power. And protections for defendants were, were sort of swept down, and the Revolutionary Tribunal basically became an extension of the National Convention, it ceased to have judicial independence. So 
The difficult thing in thinking about the terror is we have to keep all of these competing ideas in our heads at once. This is this was a government that did important things for ordinary people. And it was also a government that violated the rule of law and often turned on those same people. And after 1792, did not let them vote for their representatives. So for the opponents, for people on the right, and the men who drafted the Constitution of 1795, they collapsed all of this together. If you have democracy, if you have any kind of social welfare policy, you will necessarily have violation of the rule of law. Babouf is trying to break these things out. I think all of the Democrats are. Why can't we have democracy, social welfare policies, and rule of law? Babouf was horrified by the absence of democracy and the lack of rule of law under Robespierre, but I think he comes to believe that this may, in fact, violation of rule of law may be necessary to get rid of one's enemies. I don't think that he believes that legal violations are inherent to democracy or are necessary for social welfare programs. But where I think he stands on the same ground as his right-wing opponents is that everybody understands that democracy and social welfare go together. That if more people vote, if more people are involved politically, they're going to vote for a government that serves their material interests. And I think that both the men who I would identify as kind of centrists, I think they're conservative centrists, but the men of the the directory who are trying to define the center and the men to the right of them, they don't want to share political power and they don't want to share wealth. And so for them, it makes perfect sense that you would attack both social welfare policies and democracy. Just as for Babouf, um, it makes sense that you would defend democracy because that's the only way. He thinks that that's the only way you're going to be able to get rid of property, and getting rid of property is the only way you're going to be able to ensure any kind of equity at all. The directory and lead prosecutor, René Villart, made, made a big show of distinguishing the court from the Terror's Revolutionary Tribunal. But in the end, the trial was unmistakably stacked against the defendants, while, while at the same time, the judges gave the defendants so much leeway that they managed to turn the whole thing into a circus-like vehicle for their propaganda. A major tension, though, emerged amongst defendants, and that was over the basic strategy and framing of their defense. While Babouf, of course, was was inclined to voice active support for the, the right to insurrection and the abolition of property, that was rejected by Antonel and others, who who took the line that the plot was not a genuine threat, but rather an innocent if essential, patriotic, educational endeavor. And Babouf would sometimes find himself grudgingly going along. You write of Babouf, quote, having abandoned all reserve to defend increasingly radical convictions, he found himself silenced by his own allies and acquiescing 
to a defense he loathed. Babuth did, in the courtroom, make the case for insurrection and for, for the abolition of property as, as this indispensable step toward achieving perfect equality. But that was not the central message that defendants and their journalistic allies broadcast across France. How did Babouf's message at trial get tamed or, or neutralized? And what were the consequences, both, both in the courtroom and for French politics more generally? The person in the courtroom who does the most to make this defense that we're not dreamers, we're patriots. I mean, we're not, we're not insurgents or potential insurgents. We're kind of patriots and dreamers is Babov's ally, Filippoa Buonarroti. And Buonarroti makes the case that they're just, the people are unhappy and what the equals are doing is kind of instructing them in their rights. They're just taking advantage of their right to free speech and teaching the people. They're not, they're not seizing on a right to insurrection. They're not trying to abolish property. And in the trial, Buonarroti quite clearly says he, he disavows Babuf's argument to abolish property. Babuf goes along with it for a long time. The trial goes on for three months, and Babouf hews to this kind of a defense. But you can, you can see him, you can see in his courtroom speeches, you can see him wrestling with it. And finally, as they get near the end of the trial, he doesn't believe, he doesn't believe he's going to be acquitted. And even if he's acquitted, he doesn't think he's going to live much longer. There's something, he's, he's suffering from, from some kind of... Um, is it congestive heart failure? I don't know. But he's he's suffering from something that's making him weak and keeping him in pain. And so in his final defense, he both says there is a right to insurrection. He defends the idea of a right to insurrection, that the sovereign people have a right to rise up against a government if it's violating its responsibilities to them. So he makes this case and he says, yes, the people have a right to become insurgent. And then he says, not that I counseled that, which is not very plausible after he's made this argument. <laughs> he's like, just hypothetically. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You both have the yeah. right and to went, call for it and do it hypothetically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, Buonarroti does that at one point, but Buonarroti does it much more quickly and much more persuasively. Buonarroti was trained as a lawyer, and he understands how to just like sort of throw something out to his friends and then retreat. Babouf kind of says, yes, there's a right to insurgency. And he goes on and on and on in his defense and then and then says, you know, not that I, not that I said that we should be doing that. And then he also says... Yes, I'm, a, I'm opposed to property. Nobody else in the trial has admitted opposition to property up until Babouf makes this final speech. And then he lays out what he had already published in his People's Tribune. I'm opposed to property. Um, it's the only way to guarantee that people will have decent lives. It's the only way to guarantee equity. And... The prosecution appreciates what he's doing because they let him speak. And the minute he's done condemning property, they say, okay, you've spoken for a long time. Like, wrap it up. And they get him to try to – they try to cut short the rest of his defense. So 
None of this makes it into the press. There have been Democratic newspapers that have been following this trial very closely from even before the beginning of the trial. So a lot of newspapers covered the trial, mostly Paris newspapers, but they covered the trial, and a couple of newspapers covered the trial very intensively. Almost every day they had reports about what was happening in the trial. They don't publish anything about his defense of a right to insurrection, and they're really oblique in their allusions to his attack on property. They say, oh, Babouf talked about property in ways that we're familiar with. So it doesn't make it into the press. Why doesn't it make it into the press? On the one hand, it doesn't make it into the press because the directory had, the, the sort of legislature of the directory, the legislature had passed a law threatening death to anyone who challenged a right to property. So this was, a, this was considered a capital crime. These editors who were struggling to stay alive anyway, I mean, not struggling to stay alive physically, but struggling to sort of keep their papers going, struggling to like keep an audience, sustain themselves as people are sort of turning to the right and turning to other newspapers. So these newspapers have been terrified into silence. But I also think that they are trying to remake Babouf in their image, that they're trying to cast Babouf as a dreamer, as an idealist, who's really only fighting for democracy. And so they kind of, by the end of the trial, they've kind of brought him into the fold, that he ceases to be this fire-eating radical who's saying, let's resume the revolution and take it further still by abolishing property. By the end of the trial, they sort of created this idea that Babouf is only a defender of democracy. And I say only a defender of democracy, kind of taking, a defender of de democracy, that's a lot, but taking what Babouf hoped for. They've kind of severed his defense of democracy from his reimagining of the economy. And they do that so that so that when Babouf is condemned, people believe that he's condemned as an advocate of democracy, not as this kind of radical who imagined a world without property. As the trial was coming to an end in 1797, voters went to the polls and the election delivered a reactionary landslide. You write, quote, imagining themselves forced to choose between Jacobin anarchy and royalist despotism, voters seemed to share the prosecutor's conviction that the latter would at least bring stability. Inside the courtroom, prosecutors dismissed charges against Antonel and many others. Babouf and Darte, however, were convicted and sentenced to death, not on the charges of conspiracy for which they had been arraigned in the first place, but rather for the mere speech act of advocating the Constitution of 1793, something that was not an initial charge and just weirdly thrown in at the last minute. Meanwhile, Bonradi and Germain were sentenced to exile, which sounds way worse than just exile. They were sent to exile in a very particularly unpleasant island, if I remember correctly. But you write that 
the French Revolution was already over, well before the Equals even launched their conspiracy. And that's because the Jacobins and then Thermidor and the Directory had repressed and demobilized popular power. How then should we think about what happened after Babouf's execution, after conservative power surged in the assembly, Democrats rallied to the Directory's defense, then the Directory staged the Fructidor coup to purge conservatives, but the Directory then, once again, turned against the left, interfering in and overturning elections in 1798 with the Florial coup. Then came the coup of Prairial with a Democratic-backed legislature ousting two directors, all leading up, of course, to 18 Brumaire of 1799, when soldiers installed three consuls to rule the country, one of whom, Napoleon Bonaparte, seized total control and then formally abolished the Republic in 1804. If the revolution had ended years prior, what what should we make of this final sequence following Babouf's execution and, and leading up to the empire? So the revolution had ended because political activism, sort of independent militant activism, had been demobilized. The vast majority of the population was disenfranchised. There was a sort of two, like sort of two-level system of voting, which meant that a really narrow elite finally picked who was going to sit in the legislature. So by the time the directory comes to sit, this this constitution of 1795 has crafted a really narrow polity, a really narrow public, sort of voting public. But it still preserves important civil liberties. There's still freedom of the press, even though that can be overridden at times. There's still free assembly. And there are still elections that even some small part of the population participates in. So if the men who crafted the Constitution of 1795 wanted to demobilize the revolution, wanted to end the revolution, they had gotten it. But I think that what happens with the trial is that the directory oversells the threat that Babov and the Equals posed. And in overselling it, they wind up the right. And I think white right-wing people, they're terrified that the terror is going to return. They're so fearful that the terror is going to return. And I think that a lot of those people, and I think a lot of people in the center, they want to be sure that ordinary folk don't make political claims and don't make economic claims. So I think that that really, that drives these right-wing electoral results in 1797. And it's in responding to that election that I think the directory sets the republic on the road to ruin. So you have this reactionary victory, but only, only a third of the legislature is reelected each year. So a lot of reactionaries enter the legislature, but they're not in the majority yet. What could Democrats and 
directors and concerned legislators have done. They could have rallied the populace. They could have widened suffrage. They could have um, organized people who were still able to vote and brought enough people to the polls to ensure that there would not be another reactionary victory when deputies were elected the following year. So you get this reactionary victory in 1797, and there is a possibility of outflanking those legislative reactionaries by returning to democratic process. Very few people want to return to democratic process. And so some of the directors stage a coup, and they purge the legislature. When Democrats do elect deputies in the following year, the directors now recognize that they've purged all of the right-wing men who might have been ballast, who might have sort of stabilized the legislature, and so they purge the directory again. So the writers of the Constitution of 1795 crafted a really narrow settlement, and they couldn't even manage that. And so legislators, directors, a lot of journalists join in this process of violating the Constitution repeatedly. They don't respect electoral results. They don't respect free press. They don't respect free association. So by the time we get to Napoleon in 1799, the government has just been kind of teetering back and forth and repeatedly violating its own constitution until no one respects it anymore. When the Republic is brought down in 1799, it really comes down with a whimper. There are a few Democrats who try to resist the effort to dismiss the legislature, but mostly it's a moment when the people who've engineered the coup that brings Napoleon to power shout the loudest and sweep away the last vestiges of the Republic. You write that scholarship on the French Revolution has not paid sufficient attention to the trial of Babouf and the Equals or, or to the Directory. Where does your book fit into this larger historiography? And it really is probably amongst the largest, if not the largest, historiography on any subject in human history. I'll take the Babouf part first. Where my book fits in to the scholarship on Babouf is by turning the conversation away from what kind of communist was Babouf. Buona Rodi, his ally, wrote this memoir about 30 years after the conspiracy that Marx and Engels read. And Marx and Engels named Babouf the first modern communist. So there's a whole body of scholarship that's devoted to assessing Babouf's communism and what that means for subsequent generations. And there was a huge sort of Cold War literature, not only Marxists sort of celebrating Babouf, but right-wing 
Cold Warriors talking about his anti-democratic tendencies um, and what this what this tells us about projects for equity or communism or economic justice. But what's interesting about all of that literature is that it doesn't really pay attention to what happened during Babeuf's life. Scholars look at his papers. They look at Buonarroti's memoir written 30 years after, and they tended to assume that everything Buonarroti said was true, which I don't think it was. And some scholars have even said, well, the conspiracy is not really what interests me. I'm much more interested in the ideas. And certainly if the conspiracy didn't interest them, the trial meant nothing except that everyone pleaded innocent to the charges against them. What I have done is restore attention to who Babeuf was during the French Revolution. Not how did he look forward to Marx. We can't know that. Marx retrospectively defines Babeuf. But how did Babeuf look back to the philosophers of the 18th century? How did he interpret their work? And how did his reading of 18th century philosophy fuse with his experience of the revolution to forge his political ideas? And I'm not the only person doing this. There are a couple of other people out there who've, who are looking at Babeuf as an 18th century thinker. But so I'm interested in sort of in how, what, how Babeuf's thinking evolves through his reading and through his experience of the French Revolution, and then what the trial means, not just for Babeuf's reputation, but what the trial means for anyone following it, anyone involved in it. So my question is not who was Babeuf, the first modern communist, but who was Babeuf, the French revolutionary? And that leads me to the second part of your question, which is, what does this have to do with the directory? I have been perversely attracted to the directory for decades. <laughs> the directory, I, I always, when I explain to people my work on the directory, I always evoke a conversation I had with a friend who's also a historian of the directory. And I said once, oh, working on the directory, there are what, 10 of us? And he said, name them. <laughs> And I couldn't name 10 people. So there are more people who work on the directory now. But the thing of it is, is the directory doesn't get much attention. And so I say that, you know, there was something perverse in it because every, like, there's so much scholarship on the early revolution. There's so much scholarship on the first five years. And that's where, so that's what we think of as where all the, like, the really big events are and the big actors are and the famous speakers. And that's that's when the terror occurs. All of that occurs in five years. So I had this, I long had this question, well, what happened after, after Robespierre fell? How do we get from the terror to Napoleon Bonaparte coming to power? That's, that's five years. And it's not, it's, it's not necessarily a moment that we have thought of as being as dramatic as the first five years. But I think that so much is at stake in the trial of Babeuf 
and the equals. So much is at stake not only in whether the republic survives, but how French people who are still involved in politics understand what they've done and the meaning of the revolution. What is democracy? What is social justice? How do you resolve profound political polarization? These are all issues that help us understand why the revolution came to such a sad end. Because the death of the republic and the abolition of civil liberties is a, is a very sad end. So these issues not only help us to understand why the republic did not survive, but I think that they also stand as a lesson to moderns, a way of looking back at the first popular democratic revolution. I mean, there was a Republican revolution in America, but it was not a popular democratic revolution. The French Revolution was a popular democratic revolution. What can we learn about why the republic that brought into being failed and failed so quickly? So it's a way both of stretching our embrace of the revolution and looking at the whole decade, but also finding new lessons, I think, that this revolution has to impart to the modern world. What can we learn not only from Babouf today, but also from the directory's experiment in government by what we might call the extreme center? Today is a moment, of course, when we once again see such a center struggling to fight off a far right and, depressingly less frequently, a radical left. For me, Babouf and the directory together underscore the need for a committed, outspoken left, a left that is willing to defend its priorities, not just defend its priorities, but make a positive case for democracy and social justice. And I think that the directory, the, the the directory's pursuit of the equals and it's it's demonizing the, of them also suggests to us the importance of the center in moments of crisis the importance of the center needing to pick sides that if we look at if we look at some of the debates that took place after thermidor people who define themselves as centrist republicans kept sort of leaning to the right, as if the right was as committed to the republic as the left was. Democrats were more committed to the republic. And so I think Babouf reminds the left of the need to make committed, coherent arguments. And it reminds the center of the need sometimes to make alliances with the left and make a productive case for what democracy means for the survival of the republic and for what social justice, how social justice might enhance everyone's lives. Well, Laura Mason, thank you very much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the thought and the attention you've given to my work. It's been terrific talking to you. 
Laura Mason is professor in history in the program in film and media studies at Johns Hopkins University. She's the author of The Last Revolutionaries, The Conspiracy Trial of Gracchus Babuf and the Equals. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, the social revolution of the 19th century can only draw its poetry from the future, not from the past. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Frankos and Ben Maybe. A really big thanks to my absolutely brilliant old friend, Gray Anderson, for providing a ton of critically helpful advice on this episode. Thank you, thank you. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling other people about the podcast. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. 